Thank you so much for being here on a, on a holiday weekend. I hope it's been good for you uh, so far. What better way to celebrate America than to come to church, right, and worship and look into God's word, and you, you've made a wise decision today. How many of you guys are like fireworks people, like you love fireworks, like you're all about it? All right, so these are the people that like watching their money explode. I don't understand it, but some people are into it, you know? And uh, somehow it means that we love our country. But I hope, I hope you uh, have a safe holiday tomorrow. Um, anyway, save your money. All right, so we're back in uh, Luke today. Uh, we've taken a break for a little bit. We've been in Psalms for, for a few weeks, and we're back to Luke in chapter nine, and it's, it's been a little while, so it's kind of recap you where we've been, and if you've missed any, they're all on the app. You can go back and watch um, some of those from, from a while back, but kind of where we've been so far is Jesus is right in the middle of his ministry. You know, he, he's out there traveling around, he's, he's teaching people, he's healing people, and, and he knows that the end is coming. We're, we're about halfway through his ministry. He's about 18 months from the cross. And he, he knows that day is coming. Darkness is coming. There are already people that are plotting to kill him. The heat is getting turned up. You, you know, John the Baptist has already been executed. And so things are kind of getting real. They're getting serious. His, his time is limited with his disciples. And so he is doing what any of us would do in that situation, right? They've got a long way to go. They've got a lot to learn. And so he's all about training them. He's been, he's been spending every moment with them and taking every opportunity to point them in the right direction. And so the last time we were together in chapter 9, we talked about how he sent them out two by two to do the work of the ministry, right? This is the first time he kind of sent them out to preach and teach and heal people. And he, he gave them that authority to do those things. And so that's, that's what they did. He's revealing more and more and more who he is, who the Father is, what the kingdom is like. And then today, there's another teaching moment for these disciples, and I think for us too, and it's, it's a big one. You see, Jesus, in his ministry, he performed so many, just countless miracles in, in his ministry here on earth. There are about 36 or so recorded in the Gospels, but, but there was way more than that that he was performing on a, on a daily basis. Um, but today we're discussing one of the biggest ones. In fact, it's the only miracle outside of the resurrection of Jesus himself that's mentioned in all four Gospels. I don't know about you, but if, if God's telling us something four times, I think we should probably lean in and pay attention. He, he's trying to, to tell us something. This is one of the, the biggest, just most large-scale, grand kind of miracles that's recorded. And I think it can teach us a lot today about our lives. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, if you have your Bibles. If not, uh, it'll be on the screens. And as always, on the app, it's the best way to follow along under message notes. You can have all the scriptures there, all the quotes, all the points, and fill in the blank stuff. It's a, a fun way to stay involved. So today I've asked Angie to come and read our, our scripture for us. So if you guys would stand as we uh, read God's word together, Luke chapter 9. Good morning, City Fam. My name is Angie Hunsaker, and my husband David and our son Ethan are members here. We are on the First Impressions team. Ethan is in the youth group, and we are members of the Gomez City Group. So please join me. When the apostles returned, they told Jesus everything they had done. Then he slipped quietly away with them toward the town of Bethsaida. But the crowds found out where he was going, and they followed him. 
He welcomed them and taught them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who were sick. Late in the afternoon, the 12 disciples came to him and said, send the crowds away to the nearby villages and farms so they can find food and lodging for the night. There is nothing to eat here in this remote place. But Jesus said, you feed them. But we only have five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Or are you expecting us to go and buy enough food for this whole crowd? For there were about 5,000 men there. And Jesus replied, tell them to sit down in groups of about 50. So the people all sat down. And Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then, breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread and the fish to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward, the disciples picked up the 12 baskets of leftovers. Thank you, Angie. You guys can have a seat. So the feeding of the 5,000, this is one you've, you've probably heard before, right? And it's so easy to just read past it, but I, I think God has so much packed in here for us. And I want to kind of unpack a little bit of that with you today and then have some challenges at the end. But you have the disciples, like it said, it's, he sent them out and they've returned after doing all this cool stuff, healing people and, and casting out demons and, and teaching. And they have some stories to tell. And they come back just super excited to, to, to kind of debrief, tell Jesus, like, you won't believe what happened. You ever have your, pick up your kids from like summer camp or something and they just can't tell you all the stuff fast enough? That, that's what I imagine this was like. Like, oh, Jesus, you wouldn't believe it. You know, John cast out this demon. He was a little freaked out, but you know, we, I healed this guy, like his arm grew. You know, I, I can imagine all the stories, like they're, they're blown away by what they saw God do right in front of them. And Jesus wanted to hear it all. Just like any good father would, he, he wanted to hear their stories. And so they go away to this quiet place, but the people find them, just like they always tend to do. The news of these miracles had kind of spread through Galilee. Now, Galilee's not a town. It's, it's, it's a region. It's a small region. It measures about 50 miles from north to south, 25 miles from east to west. It's just a little cluster of villages around the sea of Galilee. So when they say Galilee, it's like saying the South Plains or something, right? So they, they've been working in this, this region. The word is spreading and people are, are coming to see what is going on. And they, they found Jesus once again. It's a huge crowd. It says 5,000 men. And so there are a lot of theologians talk about how that, that could mean that there's up to 20,000 people there. If you count all the women, all the children, everybody there, that's just a massive crowd of people. And Jesus takes some time teaching them, healing them, and they're kind of hanging out. He's doing what he does. And then the sun starts going down, starts to get a little bit late, right? The disciples are like, we got to do something. There's all these people here. They're out kind of in this remote, desolate place, isolated, the middle of nowhere. And the disciples start to suggest, you know what? Let's just send these, these people away. Like, let them go find somewhere to stay. Let them go find something to eat. Because we, we can't be responsible for all of this, right? It's just too, too much. There's just too many, too many of them. And then Jesus makes a statement that had to have shocked them. He says, you feed them. You feed them. Now, the, 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 the language he used here, the, the word you was, was emphatic. He's saying, you, you be the ones that feed them. And they had to be like, what are you talking about? Like, feed them what? How am I supposed to feed them? 
There are other gospel accounts that, that go into more detail. John, when he's telling this story, he mentioned specifically that Jesus asked Philip, because Philip was from this region, probably why he singled him out to ask him. He asked him, Philip, how much money would it take to feed these people? Okay, it, it's, it's a ridiculous question, right? I, I like to imagine Jesus asking this question with kind of a smile, like a smirk on his face, because he knows where this is headed, right? And he kind of paints them into this impossible corner. Hey, Phil, where can we buy bread? So some people think of Jesus as like serious all the time. It's sometimes hard to convey like emotion when you're reading scriptures or whatever. But I like to think of Jesus having just an amazing sense of humor. I mean, why wouldn't he, right? He's, he's Jesus. He's perfect in every way. He's the best at everything. So I think he was probably hilarious. But Philip apparently had no sense of humor because he answers his question. <laughs> he's like, it would take... About 200 denarii, he said, like a, a wealthy person's yearly salary. So he's telling them, what, why are you asking me this question? Like, it's impossible. Jesus knew it was impossible. We, we could take all of our money. We could gather up all the money that we could. And we, it, the most bread we could get in this area, it's a joke. We, we couldn't do it. It's impossible. But see, this was a test for Philip. It was a test of, of trust because there was a, a right answer to that question. What was the right answer to that question? Well, it would take a lot, Jesus, but you're Jesus and you can do whatever you want, right? But that's, that's not what, what happened. See, Philip, Philip was a little bit of a, of a pessimist. How many of you are sitting next to a pessimist right now? I'm just kidding, don't, don't, don't single them out. I'm, I'm a pessimist, I don't like that word pessimist. I prefer a realist, right? I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a bit of a, a practical thinker. His mind goes straight to how is this going to happen? Like, how can we make it work? And in the face of 20,000 people, he's like, it's not going to happen. There's just, there's just no way. But here comes some disciple, one of the disciples with the food, the little basket of food, the bread, the loaves, and as I grew up hearing it, the loaves and the fishes. I don't know why some translations use the word fishes. It's not great grammar, but uh, the loaves and the fish. And again, John points out who brought the loaves and the fish. It was Andrew. Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. And in John chapter 6, verse 9, he says, There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. Now, time out. Think about What's happening here? You, you have 20,000 people, and they're talking about how to feed them all. And Andrew has the audacity to say, hey, here's this boy with a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish. I mean, can you, can you imagine the faith of even being willing to speak that out loud? I mean, how ridiculous is that? Like, I don't know what you're going to do with this, but if anyone can, you can, right? It's an amazing step of faith. But then Andrew keeps talking, and he ruins it. You ever keep talking? Maybe you should stop talking. This is, this is what he does. Here's a little boy with some fish and some bread. But what good is that with this huge crowd, Right? He, he ruins it like, man, it was going so well. Andrew, he, it's almost like he loses faith in the middle of his sentence. He starts to hear himself, like how ridiculous it sounds. But 
Nevertheless, he, he brings it to Jesus. And now Jesus has these five loaves of barley bread and two fish. Now, let's talk about the bread and the fish. In my mind, I always imagine this basket, and maybe you've seen like illustrations or something, big like French loaves of bread or something. That, that's not what they're talking about here. He had five loaves of barley bread. This was, this was poor people bread. And he had two fish. These, these weren't big mackerel or something. It, we were, they weren't having tuna. It was most likely two small dried fish or even pickled fish. So you basically have five granola bars and two sardines that, that Jesus has to work with here. It's not a, not a great start. That's all he's got. But what does Jesus say? He says, all right, have him sit down. Have him, he's got one basket of food. He tells the disciples, have everyone sit down. Let's get ready to eat. Now the disciples are in an interesting situation, right? Because they've got to be the ones to go out and round up these people, have them sit down. There, there's, no, there's no sound system, right? Think you've ever been in a crowd of that many people like on, on grass, not, not in a stadium. That's a, that's a huge area. Tomorrow night, if you go to McKenzie State Park, there's probably going to be 10 to 15,000 people in that park. It's just a huge expanse of people. And now the disciples have to go to all of them and round them up into groups of 50. Why? Why are we, why are we doing this? Because we're, we're about to eat, right? And there's conversations going on. People are like, are we eating or what? What's going on? I'm hungry. And what would you say if you were one of the disciples? Uh, you know, probably we're going to eat. Yeah, just go ahead and sit down. Probably it's going to happen, but they, they couldn't have been sure. And then Jesus takes this, this little gift. He takes this bread. He looks to heaven. He breaks the bread, and he gives thanks to God for it. Now, how many of the disciples do you think closed their eyes during that prayer? Or how many of them were cutting their eyes at each other like, what is about to happen? Like, he's lost his mind, right? But there was nothing mystical or magical or even spiritual that happened when, when he, he took this bread and, and blessed it, right? That wasn't where the miracle happened. He's just simply thanking God for it because God's providing it, right? He gives thanks to God and then the miracle happens. We don't know how, it just does. The disciples start to distribute the food. They come back for more. They keep giving it out until everyone had eaten all they could eat. They had some left over, 12 baskets. So the 12 disciples had lunch the next day, I'm guessing. But everybody, everybody had enough. That's, that's the miracle of Jesus. Now, let's unpack a little bit of this. The first thing I, I want us to see today is, is Jesus looking at that crowd like he gave them exactly what they needed. What did they need? First, they, they needed truth. These people needed truth. Mark, in his gospel, describes it like this. Like Jesus looked at that crowd and he says he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And it broke his heart. He, he was so moved with compassion for them. He, he didn't reject them. Now, these are people that, they're not his faithful followers, right? This is, this is kind of the outer ring of people, part of the, part of the crowd that he spent most of his time preaching, trying to separate the, the crowd from the follower, you know, the fan from the follower. He's, he's talking about what it really means to be a true disciple of Jesus. These weren't those people. They weren't there to submit to him, to follow him, to take up their cross and follow 
him. They, they were just there out on the fringes, just there for the show, there to kind of see what it was all about, there maybe to get healed. Like, what, what can Jesus do for me? Just trying to figure things out. And Jesus, knowing even that they were there for those reasons, he welcomes them. He, he teaches them about the kingdom of God. He knows that they were seeking the miracles that he could, he could perform. That's what they wanted. But he knew even more what they needed. They desperately needed truth. Isn't that like all, a lot of us sometimes? We, we look at our relationship with God in terms of what he can do for us. We're chasing our own miracles. God, move in this way. God, do this in my life. Fix this. Help, help me. Help me. And it's, it's all about what he can do for us. And we fail to realize what we desperately need in our lives is, is truth. What is truth? Truth is God's word. It is the only and ultimate truth. And we, if we're being honest, don't like to hear truth sometimes. You ever heard some, some truth that you couldn't handle? <laughs> you couldn't handle the truth, you know? Like it just, like, anytime we think that we're right and we're, we're intersected with truth, we, we usually don't handle that very well, but, but we need it in our lives. We need the truth. God's word, the only truth, not, not some hybrid of our own preferences and thoughts and maybe some scripture mix in too, right? We don't get to pick and choose. This isn't some kind of truth buffet. It's God's truth. It is the ultimate truth. And we measure ourselves up against that. Without truth, we are lost. We are rudderless. Our, our, it should be our, our life compass, Right? the truth that informs every decision we make, every platform we stand on, everything we think, everything we feel, our own agendas, opinions, and stances on things come from his truth. And when I look around today, I see a lot of sheep with no shepherd, a lot of people that are desperately needing truth at the same time as they are rejecting it. We need truth. Next, they, they needed healing. They needed healing. Jesus looked at them, again, as sheep without a shepherd, and he was moved with compassion. And we, we, we don't really have a word to describe the, the word that it uses in Matthew chapter 14, this, this Greek verb that, that kind of described what Jesus was feeling. It's this word, and we're all going to say it together. You ready? I'm just kidding. It's, it's uh, splanknizomai. I worked on that a lot. Splanknizomai. This is a word that literally refers to like your, your guts, like your, your insides, a physical aching pain. This is that pain in the pit of your stomach. It's incredibly strong language. It's saying Jesus look out, looked out and saw their suffering and it hurt him. Like he, he was so moved with compassion that, that he felt it on the inside. It, this, this human suffering that he was seeing caused him pain and it broke his heart and it moved him to do something about it see see these healings and the things that he would these miracles that he was doing it, it was more than just a display of God's power it was a demonstration of his tender compassionate care for people that he loved people that Jesus came to ultimately die for you can't divorce his power 
from his compassion. Last week we talked about from Psalm 8 how David was just blown away just that, that God was infinitely just holy and, and righteous and powerful, but he's also infinitely compassionate. If you're a parent, you know what it's like to see a child in pain. I mean, there is nothing more gut-wrenching than the splint knees of my, right? You know what that feeling is to be like, you're seeing someone you love so much, hurt so much, and there's nothing you can do about it. There's no worse feeling in the world. And let me tell you this, God loves you so much. He hates to see you in pain. His heart breaks to see us suffer because he's a good and loving and perfect father. His heart breaks with ours. So, so my question for you and, and all of us that are, consider ourselves Jesus followers, his heart breaks with ours. Does your heart break with theirs? When's the last time you were moved with compassion? Do we have compassion for people that are hurting around us? And not, not just the ones that we like and the ones that we love. Do we have compassion for those hurting around us, that, for those people that are nothing like us, that, that don't believe like we believe, the, the ones on the other side of that one issue that we see post things and we just can't believe, like how does a Christian think that way, you know? Do, are we moved with compassion when we look at those people? Because as I look around, again, I see sheep with no shepherd. I also see Christians with a lot of truth but no grace. I see Christians with a lot of conviction but no con compassion. This is what Clayton talks about a lot the last couple of years, talking about is our conviction clothed with compassion? And are we truly seeking to be like Jesus, who in John 1 it says was full of grace and truth, full measures of both grace and truth? We're surrounded by people that need healing. Is our heart broken? Are we overcome with compassion for them? And then finally, they needed, they needed bread. They needed bread, but they didn't just need physical bread, right? They were hungry, but they needed something more. Every single miracle that Jesus did pointed to something. This particular miracle, one of the things it points to is Passover. Passover. This is all taking place during Passover. The, the roads in this region would have been packed with people that were heading to Jerusalem for the, the festivals and the feasts. And, and the first century, for, for Jews in the first century, Passover was huge. It was all about their identity, their nationalism, like who they identify as, who they understood themselves to be. And it all goes back to, you remember, the, the very first Passover as Moses was leading God's people out of slavery in Egypt. So you remember the, the plagues and everything else and Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go. And then finally it culminated in this one night when the Holy Spirit of God swept through the land and took the life of every firstborn son, except for the ones that had what? The blood of the perfect spotless lamb over the door. So, so this, this blood of this perfect lamb was, was literally saving the lives of their sons and also their means by which they were led into freedom out of slavery. They celebrated it constantly. They, 
They knew that story very well. They were God's chosen people. He personally delivered them out of slavery. This, this was their, their connection to the God of the universe. It was their identity. It was in their DNA. It was who they were. Now, trying to find some kind of comparison to, to us today, this is a stupid one, but the best I could do is it's kind of like Texans. We have our own identity, right? There's a little bit of our own kind of pride in who we are and where we come from. I mean, like what other state has such pride in itself? I don't, I don't know this to be a fact, but I doubt that you could find a bumper sticker in Delaware that says, born in Maryland, but I got here as soon as I could, right? You, you probably don't see it. No one else thinks of their state. I mean, a lot of us want our state to be its own country. I mean, there's not another state like that. And what is more Texas than the Alamo? Oh, see, some of you already felt it just thinking about it. The pride welling up at the Alamo. They were hopelessly surrounded. I'm going to read you something that's going to get you fired up. You ready? This is Colonel Travis, a letter that he wrote, and it's titled, To the People of Texas and All Americans in the World. I'm going to read you a little bit of this, and it's going to make you want to go out and buy a bayonet. All right, so he says... I have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion. Otherwise, the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I have answered the demand with a cannon shot, and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his honor and that of his country, victory or death. I mean, come on. You feel that, don't you? And then he draws the, the, the line in the sand and he says to stay is to, to die for something bigger than yourself or you can leave like a coward. One left. And the rest, 13 days of glory until every man was dead. I mean, this is our state. This is where we come from. This is what we, we like to, to go and, and visit and look at the bullets in the walls and all this stuff. I mean, it, it's, it's part of who we are. It's how we identify with each other. We're, we're just different. Than, and if you're not from Texas, I'm sorry, but it's just true. You're not as, I won't say, okay, you're, you're fine. We're glad you're here, but you know what I'm saying. This was true with the Jewish people. They had a distinct identity rooted in Passover and their history in their DNA part of who they were. And Jesus spent most of his ministry trying to get them to see that he was, and this would have blown their mind if they could have truly grasped it, but he was the fulfillment of Passover. The, the parallels there, the, the, the blood of the perfect spotless lamb that was shed for the, the salvation of the world. Interesting little piece here when you look at Luke. The story right before this one and the story right after this one. It's like a, it's like a little sandwich of, of, of who is Jesus. The one right before this, if you remember at the end of last, after the disciples got sent out and they were doing the work of the ministry, you had Herod that had heard about Jesus and was asking, who is this man? Who is Jesus? Remember he thought he was John the Baptist, ghost or something, and it freaked him out. Right after this, and you'll have to come next week to hear about it, it's Jesus asking the disciples, who do people say I am? Who am I? Herod, who is this Jesus? Jesus saying, who am I? 
And he's about to preach a sermon that says, I am the bread of life. Yes, the people were there for for physical bread, right? They were hungry. They weren't really seeing past their own stomachs, but Jesus is trying to, to broaden their view a little bit. Yes, they need physical bread, but they needed the spiritual bread so much more. See, see, this miracle would have also, for these Jewish people, it would have reminded them of Moses and God's people in the desert. You remember as God provided manna for them, bread for them in the desert, day by day, he provided this bread. But now this Old Testament man is superseded by the the real bread of life. Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. Eat of me and you will never be hungry again. He's saying, listen, your identity now is is in me. In the the desert, God providing this, this, this bread day by day by day. If you remember, it was only enough for the day. If they tried to hoard it, right, and gather some up, it would spoil the next day. So he was giving them just enough to eat. And now we have this this parallel in the New Testament where Jesus is multiplying this bread to feed people. And what happened? There was some left over. God was giving them more than enough. Another parallel. If you eat this bread, this bread of life, you will never go hungry again. One more parallel with with this. this. This is fascinating stuff. But... He told the disciples, you take the bread to the people. You remember the, the disciples had to be the one to carry this physical bread to these hungry people. These same disciples would eventually be the ones carrying the bread of life to a dying world. Jesus saying, I, I am the bread of life. Now, I have three takeaways for three different groups of people, okay? So I want everyone just to to find yourself in one of these groups. The first one is to the crowd. To the crowd, come closer. Come closer. The, the, The crowd is there because of Jesus' power over the sick and the signs and the wonders. They're not there to submit to his authority. Jesus has spent most of his teaching so far just separating the crowd from the true follower, talking about the difference, calling them out a little bit, right? Because they're, they're not there to surrender. They're not there to obey, but he's so compassionate. Jesus cares so much about that, that outer ring, the outer crowd of people that, remember that splanchnizomai, right? Like he, he has the ache in the pit of his stomach. He, he doesn't rebuke them. He feeds them. But he will eventually call them to more. And I would say to you today, if, if you're in that outer ring of people in that, that crowd, you're not, you're not a fully surrendered follower of Jesus where, where you're taking up your cross every day following him. If you're in that outer crowd, God's not mad at you, but he's calling you to more. Maybe for you that means You need to bow your knee to him. You need to submit to him. You need to commit your life to Jesus. Not not just simply believing, but an an active faith, placing your faith in Jesus for the salvation of your sins. At the city, we have the city seven, seven foundational truths. Tell us why we believe what we believe. It's, It's a good reminder for us. This week, we're on number three. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Since all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. Jesus had to die on the cross to pay the fine for my sin so I could be right 
with God. The wages of sin, that's what we get for our sin. Sin leads to death. And we all fall short of that standard of perfection. So, so we have a problem. If we want to be made right with God, if we want a relationship with God, if we want to spend eternity with him in heaven, we have to take care of our sin problem. And the only one that can do it is Jesus, the, the perfect, spotless lamb who shed his blood for us. And all it is is making, making a heart decision. There's not a magic prayer to pray. There's not a certain combination of, of words to unlock the code. It's a heart decision, putting your, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need you. I need Jesus to, to forgive my sins. And so best I know how, God, I commit my life to you. I put my faith not in myself, but in what Jesus did for me on the cross. And then you can start a relationship with this, this compassionate God, this Jesus. Maybe you're already, already a believer, but you're, you're in the crowd, right? You're, you're in the, the, the peripheral, you're in the outer ring. My, my challenge for you is to, to engage, live for him. Move from a fan to a follower, like get in the game, surrender your life to him, submit to his authority, take up your cross and follow Jesus. What, what is holding you back? Is there something in your life that is holding you back? from submitting to him fully. Next, to the disciples, learn to trust. For most of us in this room, this, this is us. The, the, we're, we're followers of Jesus, you know, we're disciples, but, but we need to learn to trust. Like I said before, the only miracle, this is the only miracle where Jesus did the miracle, but then the disciples had to be the ones to carry it out. You give them something to eat. And we talked about the logistics of that process. Put yourself in the feet of, of those, those disciples that day as Jesus blesses this little offering of bread and fish and, and, then, and then you've got to then take it from Jesus to the people. Those 20,000 people sprawled across wherever. Can you imagine taking that first load of, of, of first basket to, to the group you're going to or whatever? And you're like, I, I don't know what we're even doing here, right? Like you, you, take, you take it and you give it and you drop off that first load. And can you imagine on your way back, oh my gosh, I hope there's some food left. You know, like if, there's, if the food is out, I gotta be, nobody wants to take off 20,000 hungry people, right? But little by little, their faith grew. They never saw the miracle, but it was, it was happening right before their eyes. And eventually, Eventually, they think about that fifth or eighth or 12th trip back to get more food, like how much their faith was growing. Like they, they couldn't wait to see what God had done. This is what it looks like to be in fellowship with God, walking with him back and forth, coming to God with your, your emptiness and saying, God, this, this is all the faith that I've got, right? And then, then you, you obey in, in faith and you, you walk it out and then you come back to him and, and he fills you again. And little by little, you learn to trust and walk in obedience. Maybe, maybe you're running out of faith before the end of your prayer. Like Andrew, like God, I know you can, but then I'm just not sure that you will. Maybe you look at your situation and you just don't see how he's gonna do it. You don't. You don't think he can do it. Maybe you don't think he will do it. Maybe you've given up 
hope, you know, and you, maybe that, that faith muscle that used to be alive and active is kind of atrophied in your life. Are you stuck? Are you in a rut? I would speak to you today and say, say learn to trust. You only learn to trust by, by walking with him, stepping out in faith. And that leads me to the last one, to the boy. Give him what you've got. To the little boy that brought the, the fish and the bread. Spoiler, we're all the boy, okay? It, it, this is for all of us. This, is a, this boy was nameless and faceless, but he really is the biggest part of the story. Andrew brought the food to Jesus, but this little boy surrendered it. Think about this, this boy's mom who, who packed this lunch for him. She had no idea what God was going to do, who was going to touch that food, what God was going to do with it. I don't have much, but here's what I have. I, I give it to you. There might have been hundreds or even thousands more kids or adults or whatever that had some food with them, and he's the one that surrendered it. He was the one that got to see God do the miracle through him. See, it's our job as pastors not to just do the work of the ministry. Our job as pastors is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 says, Their responsibility, speaking of pastors and teachers and, and elders, is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. This is the way the New Testament church is supposed to work. We equip people to do the ministry of, of the gospel, to take Jesus to the world, and, and we keep doing this until we all grow up and we, we mature, right? We start to look more and more and more like Jesus. For, for every single person in here, what this means is for every single person in this room, God has a ministry for you. And a lot of you already found this, like you, you have these profound ministries and you're giving uh, yourselves to people in, in, in silence, maybe in private, finding fulfillment in that, giving God glory in that, leading people towards Jesus. And God wants this for all of us, but some of us are content to trade that ministry in for, for just coming once a week and listening to a sermon. It's a bad trade. That would be like me saying to you, I don't want to drive your Ferrari, but would you just explain it to me? And that would be enough for me, right? Or no, I, I don't want to go to Cabo. Just, just tell me what it's like, you know? We're, we're made for this life to, to be in ministry, to be used by God, to, to, to bring light into darkness. There is no limit to what God can do through you but we can't focus on our own smallness. We have to focus on his greatness. We, we let fear or, or complacency rob us of what God might wanna do through us. I heard this quote this, this week that I, I loved. He says, when God wants to do something wonderful, he begins with a difficulty. But when he wants to do something over the top, unmistakable, he begins with an impossibility. Here's the, the math of a miracle. This is what we saw in this chapter. Two fish, five loaves equals seven, plus God in the mix, and there was no end to what 
he could do through that one little offering. He's looking for people that will say, look, this is all I've got. This is all I can muster, but God, I give it to you. Let me show you how this has looked in my own life. And I'm not using this example to boast about me. I'm just telling you my experience of God's faithfulness when I, when I chose to be obedience in the face of what felt like an impossibility. When I was 19, I didn't know what I was doing with my life. Like most 19 year olds, didn't know what kind of degree to get. I thought I might wanna do ministry, but I didn't know what kind of ministry. And I was just kind of doing my thing, floundering around, you know. But then I got a, I got a call from somebody that there's a small church here in town, about 30 people or so, and they were looking for a worship leader. And at this point, I'd only sung in front of an audience at my high school graduation, that was it. Uh, I didn't play any instruments. This church had no musicians. They had no instruments, they had nothing. But I felt like God was leading me that direction. And so I volunteered to be a worship leader at a church with no instruments and no musicians and no way to play any music whatsoever, right? It, it seemed, my, my parents were like, you did what? <laughs> like, you, you can't do that. And so here's what I did. This was in the late 90s, okay? So there were still tape decks in those days. So I would sit back in this sound booth and they had this stack of uh, hymns and choruses, uh, CDs, and I would find the ones I wanted to do. I would play them and record them onto a cassette tape in the order I wanted to sing them. And I rounded up one volunteer that would sit, be the sound man, you know, sit back there and hit play on the cassette. And I stood up there and we sang and we, we led worship that way. This is, this, this, this looked ridiculous. I mean, it felt ridiculous. I'm, I'm telling you, I didn't know what I was doing. It was terrifying, but I was willing to be obedient. But through that one step of obedience, God opened up so much in my life, like so much uh, ministry. I mean, it, it's been an amazing ride that, that I've been able to go on a journey with him and it wouldn't have been possible without that one little stupid step of obedience where I was willing to look like a fool. What is that one thing for you that God has nudged you towards but you've been slow to answer his call? Some of you look at your life and you see it as insignificant. I don't, I don't have any talent. I'm not useful in this way. And you're waiting to reach some level of maturity or some level in your life or finances or just spiritually, whatever, like where you feel like you can do it. And God is just saying, what are you waiting for? Like, just bring me what you have. Whatever your occupation is, whatever your vocation, your calling is ministry to make his name known, to be that light in the darkness to carry to them, the, the, the people that are hungry for truth in your life, carry them the bread of life. So my question for you is what do you need to start? Oh, I've never, I've never done that before. I could never do that. Nothing will kill your faith faster than that. What's he calling you to? What's he been nudging, been nudging you towards? What have you been resisting? What does the enemy convince you that you can't do? Where has, has fear kept you on the, the sidelines? Oh, God can't use me because of this and I got this problem and I have that in my past. So guess what? God only uses messed up and broken people. 
because that's all there is. Moses, he was pretty messed up, pretty broken. What did he have to bring? A staff. And at the burning bush, that staff, God turned it into a snake to show his power. It was the instrument that he used to unleash all of the plagues that led the people out of slavery. It was the staff he put into the Red Sea that parted it so the, the, the people of God could escape. It was just a stick, but when he surrendered it to God, it was a, an instrument that helped deliver God's people. You have David, a shepherd boy. What did he have? A slingshot and a stone. And then he sees this giant. Goliath says, who is this Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? David, a shepherd boy, marches out to face a nine foot tall giant while grown men, warriors, tremble in fear behind him just a sling and a stone, but when he surrendered it to God, it accomplished the impossible. Gideon, from the book of Judges, you remember this story, Gideon, God had handed the people of Israel over to the Midianites for seven years. They were brutal people, but God had promised Gideon that he was gonna deliver them, deliver the Midianites to the Israelites. He promised them, remember all the, give me a sign, God, give me a sign. God kept giving him signs, so finally he believed him. So he goes up to march against the Midianites with 32,000 men, and God says, that's too many. And he lets most of them go. He says, you have too many warriors with you. If I let you all fight the Midianites, the Israelites would boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. So they were left with 300 to go against these Midianites who had said, it's quoted, had settled in the valley like a swarm of locusts. Their camels were like the grains of sand on a seashore. See, God's in the business of multiplying what you bring him. I wanna ask you to, to bow your heads and close your eyes as we close today. Just ask God, what, what's he telling you? What, what, what in this is for you? Are you part of that crowd that needs to, to come closer to him? Are you one of those disciples that your, your, your faith is growing weak and you need to, to trust, learn to trust and walk by faith, walk with him? And what is it that you have that you need to, what, what feeble offering do you need to bring to him and just watch him multiply? You know, faith isn't required to think about climbing a tree. Faith is required when you're out on the limb for him. Jesus is saying to you today, bring me what you've got. And you're, he might say, it's not much. And he, he says, I know. Bring it to me. God, we, we offer you what we have. God, I pray that, that we would leave here with, with some kind of nugget of truth that just will not go away, that we, we think about and, and just can't shake God, what, what are you leading us to do with this? What do, you, what do we need to start, God? What, what step of faith are you asking us to take? I pray that whatever it is we've got, however feeble, even if we feel like we're empty-handed, God, that we would surrender that to you. God, here's what we have. This is all I can muster. God, use it. And then slowly but surely, God, as we learn to walk and return to you and walk in faith, that our faith muscle would grow and we would learn what it means to have a, a true relationship with you day by day where our faith is growing. We can be mature and complete, God, that you would use us to do things in our life that will last for an eternity.
that would build a legacy of faith in you. God, we love you so much and we ask you to, to move in our hearts. In your name, amen.